put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. This is the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Young or old, professional or amateur, you've never missed a day of practice, or maybe you're coming back to rediscover the joy you once knew playing your trumpet. For those who love and are fascinated with this crazy instrument that no one can seem to master or is foolish enough to admit it if they have, this show covers all of the trumpet dynamics. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for pressing play on today's podcast. And what a honor it is to have on the show today, Mr. Augie Haas. He's going to regale us with tales of survival in New York City that has been ransacked by lockdowns and the reaction to the coronavirus. But rather than sit back and just feel sorry for himself, Augie took the time that I, I suppose ordinarily would have been would have been taking uh, gigging and and performing and maybe teaching, but the time that he had that is not uh, used to that he put it to good use. He's just released a brand new book, putting those creative juices to good use. It's titled "Little Augie and His Trumpet," and it is available now. So. Welcome to the show, Augie Haas. Thanks so much for having me. I think it was like four years ago that you and I met up at a hotel in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I lived at the time. Could have been even longer. Because I know I, I lived in Minnesota in, in 16, okay. probably four and a half years ago. Okay. And here comes Augie Haas, weary and bleary-eyed. He had just had a show in somewhere in Iowa the night before, and they had a five-hour bus ride from Iowa to Minneapolis where they had a show that night. Whoever said that jazz musicians are stuck up, I, I don't I don't believe it because Augie took time out of his schedule to just sit down and record a podcast. Uh, this is four and a half years ago, and here we are. Here we are again. Four and a half years later, I'm still doing podcasts, and Augie unfortunately isn't playing, not because of <laughs> his own choice, but that's just the way that the world is going these days. So get us up to speed. What is, what's been going on? Um, you know, everything's cool, you know, as cool as it can be. Obviously, we're in a bit of a uh, pandemic here. So, you know, trying to make the most of the time. Things in New York are slow, but pre-pandemic, things were good. I was playing on Broadway and uh, I released some more of my own albums, playing on other people's projects, just having having a good time doing all that. And then the pandemic hit. And I think it's been tough for all musicians, to be honest, yeah. or, or creative people in general, the arts and you know, it's taken a hit. So I had a little extra time on my hands and I had written this story for a book maybe a year or two ago. And I always said I was going to maybe try and illustrate it or get it illustrated. And then I found myself with more time than usual on my hands. So I illustrated it and, and we just uh, self-published and I'm, I'm very excited. I can show it, show it right here. Little Augie. Augie on his trumpet. And his trumpet. Awesome. Yeah. So if people were to order it, would you send a signed copy? You know, I'm doing 
print on demand okay. currently. Um, so it's, it's harder to do that because like once they order it, then it gets printed and sent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but I'm going to start ordering some to have in my own, mm-hmm. uh, stock. So if, if that, if that were the case, it, someone wanted one, I could do it. Is that Amazon's publishing service? Amazon for the paperback and Ingram spark for the hardcover came out. Well, people are, people are posting, people are reviewing, people seem to like it. So it's, it's good. Well, what's the trumpet? What's the the trumpet what's, what's the book what's about the, i would love to know what the trumpet is i've been trying to figure it out for over <laughs> that's why years. i'm doing this show i've been trying to figure it out for over 20 years man so the book is about you know a little kid named augie, augie obviously um it is not autobiographical story it is a fiction fictional tale i just thought it was a cute name how creative yeah <laughs> You know, it just came to me. I don't know. Yeah, it just came to me. I don't know. I don't know. I've never heard it before. So he's playing in the park with his friends, and then he hears this crazy noise coming from all the way to the other park. So he races over there and hears a man playing trumpet, and you know, is so enamored by this thing. So he runs straight home and begs his parents to get him a trumpet. And so they finally give in, and then he realizes the trumpet is a little harder than the man in the park made it look like. But he's determined, so he starts practicing and kind of blows off his friends a little bit so he can practice and get better. But then he wants to show his friends all his hard work, so he invites them over the entire neighborhood to hear him play, and then he gets too nervous, and his friends help him overcome his nerves, and it's a big celebration at the end. Is the uh, elevator pitch. I don't know if you've heard the story about the great William Vacchiano, who was in the New York Philharmonic for years and years and years. The story goes, as I understand it, he was a young boy, probably seven or eight years old, and he was given some money by his father or maybe his uncle or a family member, gave him some money to go buy an instrument. The father said, go buy a clarinet, because he, the father said, well, you can't handle the trumpet, or, or maybe, maybe the clarinet is just the easiest, and we're, we want to just get you on the easiest instrument that we can and just say that you did music or wh- however the story goes. He misunderstood it, or he said the clarinet, and I think maybe the shop owner understood it as clarino, which, of course, would be the trumpet. And so the shop owner for somehow understood it as, I want to buy a trumpet. So he ends up buying a trumpet, and the rest is history. The rest is history. That's a good story, though. Vacchiano could have been principal clarinetist of the New York. <laughs> Manny Loriano could have played the clarinet, yeah, for exactly. all we know. <laughs> exactly. That's a good story, though. I hadn't heard that one. One thing that I failed to mention is that when Augie was taking the bus ride from Iowa to Minnesota, back when we first met, was he was touring with this little-known pianist named Harry Connick Jr. Uh, Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe. Pretty pretty highfalutin, pretty high-class gig there. How did you get that gig? You know, I was just recommended by a friend, and, uh, you know, you do a couple gigs, and hopefully do a good job. And then that turned into like uh, five, five plus years with them. So it was great. Very modest. I love that. Uh, you know. Tell us some stories from the road. Oh, all right. Okay. Let me, let's be more specific. Let's talk about, let's go to a story where things just didn't go well. Not necessarily you personally, but like the band just, and it could be like logistics. Yeah. I mean, uh, logistically i remember we showed up to this uh you know the same thing is you play your show you get on the bus and you drive to the next city through the night right so mm-hmm. i remember um we were driving to nashville for a show i guess 
there was something wrong with this. It was an outdoor show and there was something wrong with the stage. And basically it was like near ready to collapse all the crew and said, Oh no, you can't, you guys can't go up there. And so there was a big to do. The guy was like, well, I got, you know, people who paid for this show and ever this and that. And, and, you know, I know the stage is safe, but uh, I remember everyone just saying, get back on the bus. We're going to the next city. So there's times like that, you know, and there's also times where, you know, I remember like one of my very first gigs with my so nervous. I, I came in on a shout chorus, like a couple beats ahead. And I played the whole shout chorus, two beats above the band. And I remember he was looking right at me and I was like, oh, I thought I played it really well, which I did. <laughs> I just happened to play it really well, two beats ahead of everyone else. And I just remember him saying, oh, man, I thought I thought you played it so confidently. I thought we were all wrong. So. You know, if you're going to make a mistake, you know, make a big one. That's that's called a trumpet mistake. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) People wonder why trumpet players are the way they are. Case in point. Yeah. There's a great uh, Bernie Glow article he wrote for The New Yorker. And Uh I think back in the 60s where he said uh, trumpet players can really only be friends with other trumpet players because they're the only ones that really know what you're going through. That's true. And even that friendship is conditional. Yeah. <laughs> but he's saying no one, no one else gets how hard it is. And Yeah, I was talking with a friend of mine who's a bass player, and he has a podcast for bassists. And we were talking about, or actually it wasn't with him, but it was another bassist. And I was just talking about the difference between the trumpet community and the bass community. The bass community is very supportive. It's just, it's just a like, legitimate community. Trumpet players are, it's just different. It's not like it's not supportive, but it's kind of like you're just kind of waiting for someone to fail. I guess I've never thought of it that way. I mean, at the end of the day, you just got to worry that you're nice to people and you can only be responsible for your own actions. But yeah, I mean, I think like in any business, there are people who just kind of have that mentality and are ready to jump in, you know, but I think at the at the high levels, you know, people are cool and supportive Mm -hmm. and they really want to see you do well. Yeah, I've had some experiences where I've uh, made some mistakes as a podcaster. I just, I just, I, I take ownership of it. I was in the wrong with what I did, but the way, the reaction from the trumpet community was, it was like cannibalistic. It was like it was it was like people were waiting for the moment that I would, and I feel like I'm putting the spotlight on myself, and, and that's not my intention. But I just felt like people were just okay. This guy made a mistake. Let's pounce on him. It's a bit of our culture right now with social media and everything like that. Yes. I mean, you see the cartoon or it's like it, there's these two scientists in a lab, right? And then they've been doing all this research for 20 years. And then, you know, he's at the computer. He goes, oh, after 20 years, this guy on Facebook says, uh, nope, that's not true. So I guess we should stop. You know what I mean? It's There's a bit of that culture going on right now with social media and everything like that. I don't know if you watch The Social Dilemma. I did see that a couple of, couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it's we have to be mindful of that, I think. You never know what someone else is going through on the other end of the screen or on, or in their just daily lives. And I think mm-hmm. if we just gave people a little a little more compassion and credit, we'd be, we'd be far better off. There is a certain liberty that people seem to give themselves on social media that there there are things that people say on social media that you would never say to another person to their face or on the phone sure or even via email yeah there's just something about it that just brings out the absolute worst in people <laughs> yeah i mean you just got to 
like I said, you never know what's going on in someone's life. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just got to assume that people are doing their best and maybe they've had a bad day or something like that. And uh, that's the, that's the approach I'm going to take at least. All right. Stay diplomatic. I'll be, I'll be the, I'm I'm staying positive. All right. I'll be the jerk. I think that uh, New York and during this whole pandemic has taught me that you gotta, you gotta stay positive and have each other's backs and Mm -hmm. just know that people are trying their best. You're like at ground zero because I I know that New York is probably among the worst cities in the U.S. What was it like when this coronavirus first became a thing and the lockdowns hit? What was the environment like? You know, New Yorkers have that mentality like we're tough and nothing can get us down and we'll bounce right back. But unfortunately, it's not that simple. There's just never been anything like this. Broadway's never shut down, or I think in the 80 plus years of Rockettes have never canceled a show or a season or anything like that. I think it was a big awakening for a lot of people. And but like I like I said earlier, you know, I think people have really come together. It was a ghost town, like legit. But you know, at the very beginning, I didn't really go anywhere because you're not supposed to go anywhere. So it's not like I went out exploring. But I was, you know, seeing pictures and I was like, wow, I can't believe Times Square is empty right now. Or you know, it really was just like, whew. and then, you know, I think people got a little, um, people got a little anxious. A lot of people left the city, you know, and then there's this article came out where the guy said, you know, New York's dead and we'll never come back. Mm-hmm. And then Jerry Seinfeld quickly uh, wrote a, a rebuttal of that, which was great saying it's not dead and it's, it's going to come back stronger than ever and enjoy Florida. You deserve it. So, uh, you know, I think New Yorkers are just, waiting to open back up and let the city be vibrant and energetic. And um, I remember running through Central Park and seeing the the hospital they built in the park and things like that for the overload. It, it was it was pretty crazy. I mean, every time I went for a run, I was kind of had my eye out for like a zombie, you know, because it, it kind of felt like, you know, a yeah. zombie apocalypse a little right. bit, Just like right. craziness. But, you know, it seems to be getting back to normal and people yeah. are being responsible and respectful. The energy's coming back. There's nothing like adversity to bring a community together. Yeah. Maybe. I know that a lot of people were helping older people who couldn't go to the grocery store, mm. things like that. You know, New York is great about that. And, you know, clapping out the windows at seven o'clock for the, uh, for the healthcare workers, you mm. know, and it was really inspiring just to see, you know, how many people would, would come together and really support each other as a community. Yeah, I've heard uh, hardship and jokes are the best way to bring people together. All right. I prefer jokes. It's almost Halloween, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a joke. What do you call an empty hot dog? An empty hot dog? Yeah. I have no idea. A Halloweeny. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that came to me from my, my, my uncle in Wyoming, <laughs> Uncle Cal. Cheers to editor. You. Yeah. Take this yeah. one out. No, it's a great joke. All right. Okay. Okay. This is a joke that I taught my son. Are, are you a religious guy at all by any chance? Uh, yeah. I mean. Okay. So do you, okay. Do, do you understand Calvinism? Yeah. Okay. So Calvinism, I, I just have to set the stage because people might not know. Calvinism, John Calvin is a great Christian theologian who's famous for um, having the doctrine of predestination. Like everything that happens happens at that exact time that it's supposed to happen. That's the idea. That's basically in the exact way it was supposed to happen. Exactly. So kind of like the matrix for people who are more into the 
Right. You know, when Morpheus goes, that happened the way it should have happened at the exact time and the way it should be. So this joke that I told my son is, and he, and it's so funny when he says it because he's, he was four years old when I taught it. Now he's six and he still tells it. But what did the Calvinist say when he fell down a flight of steps? Um, He said, I'm glad that's over with. (laughs) That's pretty good. It's, it's good when I say it, but when a six-year-old says it, it's just it's so funny. So what are you doing personally to stay motivated on trumpet or anything creative? What do you do? I did this book. That took, a, that took some time. Mm-hmm. I still love practicing every day. And I think one, you know, one good thing, one silver lining out of this is like, you really have the time to dig into the stuff you wish you always had the time to dig into. You know, I'm trying to learn more tunes again and just kind of go through different methods and experiment with a couple of different things here and there. I have a couple of recording projects I'm doing, you know, all remote stuff, playing on some other people's projects, working with a singer on a a new project. That's going to be great. We're taking all the tunes from the Sinatra Live at the Sands record and we are redoing them like total reharm and doing them electric. So electric bass, electric keys. This guy, this singer was the the genie at Aladdin. So he's got like a big, you know, gospel type voice. So we're kind of fitting that music in that genre. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm excited about that project. So, so like Sinatra plugged. Yeah, Sinatra plugged. Cool. Yeah. What's it like being, do it, being in the pit on a Broadway show? It's great. Uh, you know, obviously from a practical standpoint, it's really great to have a steady gig and you know, that kind of security. And then, you know, you're just hanging out with your friends and, and playing music and you get to do it every day. So, you know, there's no no complaints. Mr. Understated. <laughs> no, it's just, you know, you're... What, you're I mean, what, what's... what's uh, tell me about the, like, the musicianship. Are you allowed to make a mistake? Obviously, we all try and play our best. But yeah, if, if you make a mistake... I mean, I, th- I guess there are different... You know, you hear horror stories from back in the day... There's a trumpet player in New York who, I think, in my opinion, has all the best stories. Bob Milliken. I heard some famous story that you know he missed like a few notes, and the conductor said, "Oh, you've you've missed the allotted amount of notes you're allowed to miss." And he goes, "Well, how many notes am I allowed to miss?" Or something like that. You know, something hilarious like that. So some conductors really get on you, and some, I think some are a little more understanding. You know, the the show Aladdin is like a lot of music in a short amount of time. You know, it's production number after production number. It's like more like a big band kind of approach to there's three trumpets, there's two bones. And I think it's obviously it's the trumpet. There's nowhere to hide. But, you know, if you make a mistake, it's not as obvious as in, let's say, like Porgy and Bess in a quiet moment, you know, where you have to sneak in on this note. You know what I mean? That being said, Don Downs plays lead trumpet at Aladdin. And, uh, you know, I think in the five years we played there i'm maybe on one hand i can count how many times i've i've heard him i mean he's amazing he's mm. you know just every night just 100 percent. it's great what's his name don downs don downs yeah yeah he played with woody herman back in the day mm. and uh he's probably done like i can't even tell you how many shows he did all the touring acts that came through atlantic city he's mm. an amazing uh trumpet player from the delaware philly area grew up in philly I went to school in Philly and then was working in New York and uh, Atlantic City during the heyday of Atlantic City, playing with all the acts that came through there. And uh, amazing, amazing 
lead trumpet player, but amazing, amazing overall trumpet player too. He can do anything. Yeah, we should get him on the show. Absolutely. I'll happily, yeah. uh, happily send you his info. Okay. Well, because I've because I've never done Broadway myself. Yeah. As a as a player, and um, I'm just I I just always wonder if you make a mistake, it's like it's a very high standard of you definitely don't want to make mistakes i'll just put it that way <laughs> okay you know you definitely don't so uh, yeah it's definitely high pressure but you know just like anything when you're doing it eight times a week mm-hmm. you know you you gain that confidence and the comfortability you know i think when you're subbing on a broadway show it's a little more stressful because yeah. you're not getting that repetition that you do as a, as a as a mm-hmm. regular player so yeah. i think that's more where you hear the horror stories you know from the subs yeah Blame it on the subs. <laughs> what recording albums have you done in the last few years? So in two thousand, what year? We in? in 2018, I did, a, I did a trio record that debuted me as a singer, which I've always sang. I've always had a great time singing. I just had never recorded it before. Uh, and then the next year I released another album with, um, with my trio and a big string section, doing all these like old, old doo-wop type tunes, but made them a little more modern for jazz and that was a lot of fun too and then i have a new record christmas record coming out next month so i'm excited about that too when, when you release an album and, and i'm not like trying to get figures or anything but yeah are you trying to sell it or what's what's the point of of releasing an album because i because i know that when you have a physical cd it's yeah. it's it's a hard sell sure no you're right and it's a really fair question obviously like you're not trying to sell. I mean, I think people kind of buy CDs still, but like that's not where my head's at when I do it. I number one want to do it to stay creative and stay relevant. Always producing things, you know, keep your name in the mix on the map and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, definitely from a relevant point of view, and and in terms of like from a like a financial or you know way to to make money, you know, you you really are going after the streaming numbers now. So, you know, I'm not sure how familiar you are with playlisting. You know, they have like Spotify, for instance, has all these curated editorial playlists. So if you can get on one of the playlists, it's like the new version of the radio, basically. Yeah. Um, and, and if, you know, you get X amount of dollars per stream or cent, I guess cents per stream mm-hmm. these days, right. you know, but if you can land on a playlist, I think you can make some decent money. Okay. You know, uh, on Have We Met, I know one of my tracks got playlisted. I don't really pay attention to any of that stuff, though. I think you can probably drive yourself pretty nuts if you're, <laughs> you submit and you pitch to the playlist, and then I kind of forget about it. Which playlist is it? Um, I think it was called The State of Jazz, maybe it was called. It was a few years ago. But yeah, um, but yeah. and then, you know, there's obviously like companies you can hire, apparently, that will you know, increase your chances of playlisting, probably have the relationships and things like that. So that that's one way to do it. I think that when you're touring and you're and you're wanting to, you know, go out and play, I think having those new projects also help. And I think mm. that's really why you do it. Let's say you're gonna set up a ten city tour, you can you can say, Oh, I've re- released these albums, you know. Uh I'm not just like a nobody who you know, just wants to play at your club or something. I think it gives you a bit of credibility. Well, I've heard so many different variations on that answer because, you know, 20 years ago, that was that was it. You want to produce an album and then sell it because th- that's the only way you could consume music at the time. There, there, there was no streaming. 
Yeah, the landscape has definitely changed um, mm. for sure. And it's a lot easier to record, obviously, with home recording. You know, the Christmas album we did, everything was remote. So, you know, I was just wow. sending track, different tracks to different people. So obviously, like, that's never, that's the first time I've done that. And the only reason we did do it is because of the virus, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that is not my preferred method. I'd rather right. go in and be with everyone. You know, so that's, that's different too. And now with, like, things like TuneCore and CD Baby, you can basically self-publish a, a recording project now you know, and YouTube and things like that. It's easier to do too. So that I think, you know, we have to keep that in mind as well. Yeah. You know, to release an album 20 years ago, you, you'd need the record label and support and, you know, someone who's going to pay you a lot more money than it costs now and all the things. It's interesting that although the way to share your music has changed via streaming versus a CD or a record or whatever, the principle of having those contacts the relationships, the friendships, whether business or personal, that hasn't changed. I think your chances of getting discovered by the right people are a little easier now with with the exposure of like, you know, you can do it in a click of a button rather than having someone to hand you a physical product, that Mm -hmm. person having to go to whatever player they are going to play this physical product. If I saw someone I knew and I said, oh, you got to check this out, I could put my phone right up to their ear and it's instant, you know. Which is a new, which is a new thing, which is yeah. good and bad. When you're releasing CDs or touring, is there a conscious effort on your part to build rapport with people that dig your music? Maybe a little communi- sense of community, maybe. Yeah, I, th- I think it's important. You want people to feel like they are part of the experience. You know, even to go to a jazz club, it's. You know, these concerts are expensive. Before this pandemic, I was supposed to have this show at Birdland jazz club in new york which is going to be great i love that club and um even then like a ticket is thirty dollars which isn't you know crazy but it's it's also not cheap because then you're going to buy a drink that's another you know 10 15 dollars in new york and then you know maybe there's a two drink minimum so you know at the end of it you're like sixty dollars in or seventy dollars in it's like oh man so yeah you really want people to feel like you appreciate them being there and you know that they're part of the experience well, let's say that tomorrow the the coronavirus is no more. Yeah. Or maybe next week. And like life is like there's an executive order signed by the governor of New York saying you can open Broadway all clear. What's the first thing that you would do? Like uh, uh, performance wise. I would love to get that show back at Birdland we lost because <laughs> okay. okay. um, it was a, it was going to be a great show that I had got a bunch of my friends. I was calling it Augie House and Friends and the genie from Aladdin was going to come sing a couple tunes. Uh, I had another great singer. She's back in Australia right now. Uh, my friend Chantel. She was going to come sing a couple tunes and I had some great instrumentalists lined up to come play some tunes and it was just going to be a really fun night with a lot of different people and that would probably be the first thing I'd like to get back but uh but yeah I mean I'd love to get back to Broadway playing with humans again um I'd probably set up maybe this little book tour book concert tour going to libraries or schools and promoting the book and doing small concerts there um I think that would be a blast I would love to do that gosh there's there's just so many things but Past performing, I'd love to go to some of my favorite restaurants again. You know, just little things like that that you take for granted, uh, that you took for granted pre-pandemic, but definitely don't now. 
you know, just mm. getting together with friends. I don't know. Something as simple as giving someone a hug. You know, it's uh it's crazy. Just yeah. just all the things that are different. You've had what eight months to think about this, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> seven, eight months. Seems yeah. Crazy that this is uh extended this long. Nobody would have expected that. But yeah. But I'm I'm gonna play the optimist now and say that there's a lot of things like little Augie on his and his trumpet that may not have been able to be published if Augie was uh, performing full-time and doing Broadway and everything. And I just think that there's a lot of things that, that a lot of seeds being planted right now. Five, ten years from now, they're going to bear fruit. I don't know, maybe call it the pandemic harvest or something. Little ideas that are being planted right now that they're not going to bear any fruit right now, but five years from now, it's going to be something really special. Yeah, I agree. I think that, that there's a lot going on behind the scenes that people aren't seeing. And, and when it does open up back, uh, when it does open back up, you know, mm-hmm. and people are going to be starving for concerts and live music and mm-hmm. art and all right, those things. Right. And, you know, it's just gonna, it's going to uh, bloom into a beautiful bouquet of, of flowers. And I think it's going to be great. A couple of artists being hopelessly optimistic about this. No, it's it's going to come back and it's and I yes. I I've said it before, it's going to come back and it's going to come back stronger than ever because yeah. you know, people aren't going to take it for granted for sure. Yes. At least for the first week. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm right. Kidding. Well, my guest is little uh my guest is Big Augie Haas. <laughs> he's the author of Little Augie and His Trumpet, which you can find on Amazon. And if you just go to his website, Augie Haas, spelled H-A-A-S dot com, and you can find all the information about the book, about Augie. I'm sure his albums are for sale there as well. So, Augie, thanks for being on the show, dude. Man, thanks so much for having me. appreciate it. All it's right. good to well, see your face. Well, let's, uh, let's, next time we see our faces, let's make sure that it's in person next time. That sounds good. I'm James Newcomb, and you're listening to the Trumpet Dynamics podcast, signing off. Trumpet Dynamics is produced by Beaten Path Media, LLC. Special thanks to Mike Vax for allowing use of Serenade to a Bus Seat for the show's theme music. To stay in the loop with the growing community of trumpeters who enjoy this podcast, just type trumpetdynamics.com in your browser and you're off to the races. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm your host. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.